Telus International Studios, where customer experience meets digital transformation. And welcome back to Telus International Studios. I'm your host, Patrick Hawhey, and this is the series where I meet people at the cutting edge of technology and customer experience and hear insights into world-class CX, digital technologies, and effective leadership. My guest this episode wears a lot of hats, chiefly that of global innovation evangelist at Salesforce. He is also an author, a futurist, an anthropologist, and much more, all of which gives him a fascinating perspective on the future of digital technology and crucially where we humans fit into that picture. And he has some very, very practical advice about how we as humans can successfully make our way through a rapidly changing world. My guest is Brian Solis, and I think you are really going to get a lot from this conversation. So let's get to it. Brian Solis, you are very welcome to TELUS International Studios. How are you doing today? <laughs> well, I am doing wonderful, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear what we're going to talk about today. Well, listen, let's get started. So I'll start at the very basics, because when I was researching for this interview, I came across so many titles that people use to describe you. You know, best-selling author, digital analyst, anthropologist, futurist, innovation strategist, and there were lots, lots more. So I thought instead of me picking one of those or going through them all, I thought <laughs> I'd just start by asking you to describe yourself for our listeners, if that's okay. Okay. Well, officially, I'm the uh, the global innovation evangelist at Salesforce. And what that means is it's my job to study trends in technology, but also trends in market shifts and societal shifts uh, to help reverse engineer that for executives and also uh, leaders of particular organizations within a business, for example, customer service, marketing, sales, uh, product development uh, to help them understand how to make decisions in the short term, but also in the long term to be more relevant, to be more innovative. Uh, and even if that means to uh, enhance everything from customer experience or employee experience or product development uh, or business model uh, operation or business model innovation. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun, keeps me busy, certainly. And the reason why you hear all of those different titles is because they sort of all coexist in the Venn diagram. Uh, I'm, I'm also a digital anthropologist, which is sort of a, a practice of how I come uh, come to my, uh, my approaches. Uh, I have written eight books. Uh, I speak all over the world. Uh, well, uh, virtually these days. And, <laughs> uh, and, uh, that, uh, at, at the end of the day though, you'll probably see it in a lot of my titles and social media is just, I, I always end everything with just human being, uh, always, always trying to keep it real and try to keep everything human, no matter how complex or complicated or chaotic things get. That's, it's really interesting you mentioned that because ultimately we can talk about digital, we can talk about processes, systems, business, direction, strategy, etc. But when you look at, say, what Salesforce does, for example, it's just, it's just uh, connecting with humans. It involves customers, employees, business people, and ultimately everything comes back to people. So I suppose it makes the most sense to keep it simple, but it can often be hard to keep it simple and just bring it back to the basics. The reality is, is that it's it's incredibly difficult to make things easy, uh, as you explain it, and that it's 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 natural to find it complex, uh, and then to disregard it because of its complexity, which is which is our, our human nature. Uh, so the the inspiration here in humanizing the work is why I do what I do. And look, at the time, 
that I started using the term digital anthropologist. I also uh, dabbled in digital sociology uh, and and digital psychology. And and the reason why there's a digital uh, precursor to all of those terms is because I was only focused on how digital was affecting those things. Uh, so in in the '90s when I started, you know, you had you had online groups, you had the dawn of things like AOL, CompuServe, you had sort of the consumerization of the internet uh, that followed. Uh, you had Amazon and e-commerce in '90 '96 or so, and then every wave after that has. Uh, you, you you look at the iPhone in 2005, you look at Facebook in 2006, and Twitter in 2007, uh, Instagram following TikTok, Snapchat. You, app economy, uh, delivery, gig economy, every single one of those things has fundamentally changed how we behave as human beings. And that's that humanization is actually what makes transformation and innovation so meaningful. But also being in Silicon Valley all of these years, it has been an uphill battle and still kind of is. The pandemic has changed that for the better, though, that I've had to break conversations down from being technology or digital first to being human centered. And then we can bring in technology to be an enabler. It's really interesting. And because it's, you know, you mentioned there that all of these innovations have changed how we behave as humans. And I suppose, you know, what what a customer wants and expects has completely changed in the last few years based on the, the different methods of communication and channels available to them. And so many other in so many other ways we change as humans. But at the same time, fundamentally, we all, we often behave the same as humans as well, because, you know, you look back to Greek tragedies and, you know, the fundamentals are still there. So I guess you probably have to to keep those two things in mind it's like what do i know about humans that never change and now what is changing about the parts of humans that do change so you, you must have a lot going on <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting too because at the at the beginning of the pandemic uh i paused all other narratives that weren't related to COVID-19. And I hyper-focused all of my work on how the pandemic was changing us uh, in terms of our relationship with technology. And then also how that rapid acceleration and rapid shifts uh, and also things like fear of a, of a, of a, you know, coronavirus, uh, things like stress on the economy, things like stress uh, and, and and anger around politics and, and civil unrest. Uh, and all of all of these things kept me more than busy, but it also was some of my best work and uh, some of the quickest amount of time uh, in that I, I gave, it gave birth to what I called the novel economy which was a, a, a framework essentially for looking at what the next 24 months uh, would look like if you had to take control and not just try to respond to the the basics of calling everything a new normal or a next normal. Uh, it helped me identify a, a much bigger class of cross-generational customers, which I call Generation N or novel as a, as a derivative of the novel economy, which was how, how digital changed their behaviors, their expectations, their preferences, how it continued to change their activities in the real world. And then also how they felt, you know, the somatic marker of such a devastating uh, disruptive disease uh, and how it was uh, making people reassess sort of like the meaning of life, their values, uh, their aspirations, uh, their definition of success, how they spend money, how they save money. Uh, and all of that is really about 
taking those sources of inspiration and recognizing that, yes, this is a devastating time, but it's also a control alt delete moment and we can move forward in it. And we have much more control in the direction we go and we're already disrupted. Why would we want to go back to normal? Let's create the future we really want, make it matter. And as you know, one of your titles being a futurist, does that make it a little bit more difficult to predict where things are going and what the consumers of 2024 or 25 will want? Or do you feel you, you have got a handle on that based on, on the last number of months? Well, you know, there's there's futurist as it relates to, uh, I think, the what most people think of it as, which is predicting the future. What, 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 what does the world look like 10 years from now? Uh, and when when I when I get involved in conversations like that, I'm I'm really not a futurist. I'm I'm actually just guessing based on uh, you know what what I know uh, and and also more aspirationally, like what I want to see. Uh, but usually the work in future in futurism, I guess, is scenario planning. So for example, nobody uh, in the last decade was scenario planning for a global pandemic and what to do and how to operate. You know, what, what, now that we know in hindsight, you know, we'd have to set up for working from home. We'd have to accelerate digital infrastructure. We have to accelerate e-commerce, digital customer service. So these, these things came out after the fact, uh, as a priority, but any, anybody working uh, as a futurist could have, could have scenario planned for that. And, and now they're going to scenario plan for it in the future. They'll scenario plan for climate change and micro and macro disruptions. Uh, they'll, they'll, uh, scenario plan for financial uh, meltdowns. Uh, just not that we want to see these things happen, but it's good to, to, to plan for that. In fact, I, I wrote a piece in ZDNet called uh, The Need for an AI Futurist in the C-Suite in that we were getting su- such new volumes of data because of all of these new behaviors that we needed a system dedicated to just processing this and, and identifying patterns and, 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 and creating algorithms that could allow us to play this out in uh, interesting, you know, surface things that we might not have other seen, uh, might not have otherwise seen as human beings as we were reacting to everything else. And so it's really important that one, we start thinking like this, and two, that we keep an open mind, because also in hindsight, Bill Gates has been warning that a, that a novel coronavirus was on the horizon. It was an imminent, and I th- he even gave a TED Talk about it, uh, and that <laughs> no, I don't think anybody really wanted to listen to that. No. <laughs> The Cassandra prophecies, speaking of Greek tragedy, and it's and it's yeah, like and such a, a really interesting answer you give, Brian, and and the you you also mentioned that obviously you're you're uh, you've written eight books. Uh, your latest book is something I really want to talk about, and it's called Life Scale: How to Live a More Creative, Productive, and Happy Life. And I guess when you mentioned that control alt delete moment, that's something that a lot of us are thinking about: how can we live more creative, productive, and happy lives? And this is a really good time to think about that yeah it was a it was a big it wasn't a book that was on my horizon uh and it's a book that i i had to write in order to fix my life uh, and then realized that i couldn't be the only one facing these challenges and on that note it's also a book that i i also wonder if it would be better received with less resistance now as a result of the pandemic, as a result of us having to accelerate our digital lifestyles, and also as a result of things like Netflix's um, social dilemma becoming so popular, uh, and also also with the the fake news, and also uh, just conspiracy theories, you know, all of these things are, are part of the same problem. And that problem is how we 
you, our relationship with our phones and the information behind those screens and the things that we surround ourselves in terms of social networks uh, turned out at scale to reinforce the worst in us without necessarily re realizing it. And it's not our fault. It's actually just by design. It's how a lot of these things are developed to sort of incent us to, to use them more, to share more, to engage more. That's all part of a technique called persuasive design and, and also social engineering. Uh, and it was all for the benefit of each one of those platforms or each one of those gaming systems in order to get us to use them more and more and more. Not unlike what we see, for example, in gambling and in, in casinos. A lot of the same th techniques were applied, I believe. Mm -hmm, absolutely. For example, like inter intermittent variable rewards, which is, you know, every time you pull a slot machine, it's always so close. You feel like you got to pull it again. Uh, and with when you open an app, for example, uh, or when you get a notification from one of your apps, you feel like you're winning because you're you, you matter subconsciously uh, and gives you some reason to like connect and, 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 and stay on that. But what no one studied was what are the longer term effects of that? If we're constantly needing to share or needing to be part of something in order to feel like we matter, if we're having to constantly shift between all these networks, if we're having to share everything uh, at, at, at any time in order to be, to feel like we matter, uh, to be relevant, you know, what, what does that do? And it turns out it actually does quite a bit. It rewires your brain. It, it actually makes your body into this crazy cocktail of, uh, of six different things that can make you happy or sad. And most often uh, it's sad, which is why we have to keep coming back for attention, getting those microdoses, those hits. Uh, and essentially we become addicts to this lifestyle and don't realize it at all. Uh, the only reason that I did uh, and is because I was trying to write another book and I really was, was really struggling to balance my work and my research uh, to write a proposal for a book uh, not even the book itself. And, and then also, you know, continue to write articles and whatnot, you know, just my normal routine, which was already a lot, but you know, after all of these years, it had, it had a rhythm and I had seen for the first time that my creativity, my depth, my flow, my deep thinking, all of it was absolutely affected my ability to communicate a complex topic into something much more simplistic uh, and approachable by everybody it was just completely compromised. Plus, then I started to look around uh, on, on other fronts and you know, things like my personal life and my happiness and all of these things were just completely affected, uh, relationships completely affected. Uh, and there, it was all part of the same thing. And lastly, I just couldn't find any solutions other than just superficial things like, okay, let's, let's turn off notifications. Let's delete apps, uh, put your phone away, uh, try practice mindfulness, practice yoga, uh, get the calm app, uh, you know, go for hikes. Those things help, but they're not actually getting to the, the root of the problem, which is that you've literally been rewired uh, to, to, to do all these things and it's not good for you, but you can, I didn't want to abandon it either. I mean, I'm, I have time. I'm a digital anthropologist and I work in innovation. I, I got to, I have to take control of this and give it a sense of purpose, a sense of intent. Uh, and then that research became the first half of the book. And then the path forward became the second half of the book. So this was quite personal for you. And when, when did you, I guess, start to write the book? When did you realize that you had a problem with the digital distraction that so many of us do and that you had to start doing something about it? It was a series of things that not one was the aha moment. Uh, in my research, I noticed 
my reports going through an inordinate amount of editing, uh, my book proposal, I ended up having to hire a, a developmental editor to help me kind of flesh things out where I'd never done that before. Uh, and, you know, when you're going on eight rounds of, of revisions, you, you're just like, what's going on? Uh, and I, I chalked it up initially to, uh, uh, you know, writer's block, uh, stress. Uh, but then also, you know, I started seeing patterns in, in other parts of my life where I, I was, I'd, I wasn't making the best decisions uh, and those decisions were based on what I would later discover was the fact that as you live a more digital lifestyle, as you're using more and more apps, as you're sharing things, as you're jumping onto whatever trends or challenges, uh, you know, your center of reference actually moves without you knowing it. And so you're making decisions based on this new center of reference. It feels like, you're, like you're, your values are intact, but they're actually not. Uh, and then so the, all of these things just sort of combined uh, were triggered by uh, some side research, which was a project I had done for a global beauty brand at the same time, which was how is Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok affecting a woman's definition of self beauty? How does it affect self confidence? And then what are what what can this beauty company do to add value to somebody's life where they don't feel like they have to keep up with everything that they can be beautiful, that they can be confident without having to experience FOMO and all of these things. And that research helped me to realize, wow, if that's happening, if, if people are feeling less about themselves and they're carrying the stress with them uh, as a result of just simply being on the platforms, then what, what else is happening? And I, I later discovered that there was also the engineering behind fake news and to make it so believable to stoke people's biases in, in your favor. Uh, it led, so I ended up giving these presentations at South by Southwest on all of this discovery. Uh, and then I also talked about it as a, how, how it was affecting us as individuals. And it, was, it wasn't allowing us to live our best lives. And I gave, I, that presentation was a big hit and someone came up afterwards and said, so what do we do about it? And, <laughs> and then that became the, the, the premise for the book itself was uh, trying trying to answer the question of what do we do about it and realize you can't, you can't take control of everything. You can't fix fake news overnight, but there's certainly the same, same processes to do it. You can't, you, you can't do all of these things at once, but what you can do is like the stoic philosophers will say is that you can't control the world or the events that happen to you, but you can control how you react to it. And that was what life scale was all about, was realizing that I have a choice in the way that my life is going to move forward, how, uh, where I want to be, how I want to feel, what I want to do. And then I'm going to scale my life forward in those directions by doing the things, uh, using the tools to do the things, uh, and surrounding myself with the people uh, who help me move in this direction uh, better. And that research was inspired by all kinds of other research because there wasn't any research on this front. For example, borrowing from Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, uh, borrowing from any type of uh, addiction response, uh, but also looking at much more practical ways of building towards a future that didn't just kind of play off the things like The Secret uh, or other types of motivational uh, books. I, I found that there was a science to it. And that science was rooted in creativity. And even if you're not Picasso, uh, that the practice of creativity in all of its forms actually helped rewire your brain 
it to a better state, not back, not because I didn't want to go back to where I was. I wanted to be better. Uh, and so things like the, um, the artist's way uh, was a big, a big inspiration uh, and, and other more f- forms of classical creativity helped inspire the con the construct or, or the formula that became life scaling. Well, I hate to ask you to reduce an entire body of work down to a sort of a few practical tips, and I hope it doesn't sound glib, but if you were to give um, listeners in the time we have one or two or three things that worked for you, things that might work for them in terms of at least starting the process of taming the chaos, as you nicely put it. I'll do my best. Uh, there's a great video. Uh, in fact, it's at briansolis.com. It's under articles. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a 60 minute video though. It's a conversation of me breaking out it in, in, in very deep levels what this means uh, and what to do. And there's also uh, if I think it's on YouTube the South by Southwest keynote where I debuted the book on stage. That's a really good. Before you have to read the book, a deeper uh, discussion as to why. Uh, and, and the reason why I'm prefacing this answer, I know you wanted something short, uh, is because like me, the reason the book, the book didn't fly off the shelves, to be honest with you, when it first came out, it did, it did well. But it's because none of us realize we have a problem until you realize you have a problem. Uh, and for everybody else, it's just normal. This is how I feel. This is the, I, these are the technologies that I use. Uh, I'm, I have a thousand tabs open on my browser. That's just normal. I can't focus uh, for more than, you know, a handful of minutes. That's just normal because everybody's doing that. I'm in front of you at a restaurant. Well, in, in other times, but I'm not looking at you because I'm on my phone. That's just normal. Uh, so it, a lot, a lot of this is recognizing that you're actually part of the of the challenge uh, in your own in your own way in your own sense. Uh, so the easy thing that I try to help people understand is that all right, well, let's just start with something that's more tangible. Let's not try to fix your life in one conversation in three points, but we can help you figure out that you could use probably some more time to be deeper, to be more creative, to be more original, uh, not like everybody else, uh, to whatever it is that you're going to create to make it stand out so that when somebody sees it or watches it or reads it or talks to you, that there's something different about you. And that was what I was, I called uh, focus sprints. Uh, Try to focus for 25 minutes on a particular project without without allowing yourself to be distracted by anything, email, text, social, uh, a conversation, just set a timer for 25 minutes and focus on it. If you fail, start it again and focus on it and build that discipline because what's happening in that moment is that you're actually starting to rewire your brain to give yourself that time and that space uh, to do something that is a little deeper than you would normally have other uh, attacked it. And the reason why we didn't see it as a problem before is because we have our own mechanisms for protecting ourselves. Uh, So we, of course, we're not going to see that we're not doing great. Everything we do is great. Everything in social media or devices tell us that we're entitled to have things now, that people react and tell us that we're great. We get likes and follows and comments. So that little focus sprint in of itself helps us kind of see it. It's painful to do it. I couldn't get past three or four minutes the first time I tried it. Uh, it's a painful eye-opener, but also a healthy experience to come out to on the other side of it to say, I wonder what else uh, I'm doing that's not the best or the healthiest. And uh, that's when, you know, it's worth, it's worth it if you can take a look at the book Lifescale. 
Yeah, I would highly encourage everybody to do that. And did you find you today in this interview? Are you have you managed to rewire yourself over the last few months or few years? Do you feel like you're in a better place? I will say absolutely I'm in a better place. In fact, writing the book itself has led to a lot of life changes personally and professionally for the better. I do keep the book on on my desk <laughs> because I do have to revisit it. It's not like one and done. This is something that the more your eyes open, the more you see, uh, and the more you realize that you can do and you can learn and unlearn. Uh, I had a friend actually reach out to me who, after reading the book, has just shared incredible like success stories of how his life has changed and how his family's life has changed. And uh, he he sent a he sent a note yesterday saying, "Yeah, I just want to let you know that I still make mistakes, but I also still." continue my life scale journey. And I keep that book out and I'm constantly updating my journey. And I thought, yeah, me too, especially in this pandemic, because boy, was was escapism uh, a big thing, you know, like for looking for that reprieve away from politics, away from the stress of the disease, away from like the the, the anger. Uh, and of course, digital was our only reprieve in, in many cases. So I, I was actually perpetuating the, the original problem. But just being honest that, you know, this is something that becomes a, a lifestyle moving forward. Well, while we are working from home and have lost that kind of work and normal life barrier, we find ourselves on our laptops for far longer. But not only that, we find that the companies that we used to deal with in a face to face way in, a, you know, walking into bricks and mortar establishments. Now we are we are communicating and dealing with them online through digital platforms. So, in fact, it's probably never been a better time for us to rethink well, if our lives are going to be sort of, you know, moving more digital because they have to during times of pandemic, then we need to step up the other stuff to try and counterbalance it, the creativity, the focus, the walks in nature, whatever that is. So it's a really good time to be thinking about this. Yeah. If, 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 if you don't mind, I'd like to just share a quick, a quick story of, of how you know, this plays out, not just into individuals, but you have to also recognize as a business that your customers are like this. They're moving quickly. They're, they're experiencing anxiety and stress and, uh, these, these things that they haven't come to grips with internally, right? Emotionally, psychologically, intellectually. Uh, and so as a business, these things should inspire you to create something more meaningful in your products, your services, your customer journey, your engagement, for example. You know, what could you say or do or present differently knowing that they're feeling this behind the scenes? Uh, and I call these, it's, it's something that I'm working on now. I call it the ignite moment. And the ignite moment is that moment you have somebody's attention and what you're going to do with it in a way that matters, that makes them feel reprieved, that makes them feel refreshed, that makes them feel appreciated or valued because that emotional connection, right? now, especially with the somatic marker that is COVID-19, they're more vulnerable. They're more open to something uh, meaningful. So I, I'm taking this work uh, at Salesforce and I'm applying it to customer experience design uh, across the journey and also in the specific disciplines like customer service or marketing. Uh, and these Ignite moments really help experienced designers rethink just the, the concept of service design into something that's much more service innovation, business model innovation, engagement innovation, experience innovation uh, in, a, in a much in a much more human way. And, and my uh, my book before LifeScale was called X, the experience when business meets design. And I started actually reading that again. It's more important today than it was then. And the two it's it's weird how LifeScale has now allowed me to see 
the other side of it to design better engagement methods and, and journeys for people that haven't realized they need to life scale yet. Really nice. Really, really nice. And finally, you were asked recently in an article for your predictions about digital transformation in 2021. And you spoke about something that you called the death of the two to three year digital transformation project, which I found really interesting. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Well, I think you just sum- summarized it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Lovely to have you on the show. <laughs> Part of the digital transformation challenge that we had before COVID or BC, as I call it, was that we just didn't think about things expeditiously. We were, many organizations were incredibly bureaucratic. Many decision makers weren't actually the customers. Uh, A lot of our decisions were driven by shareholders or stakeholders or boards. A lot of our mindsets were governed by this short-term view where a lot of these these expenditures were cost centers, not necessarily investments in, in future relevance or, or competitiveness. So the, the premise of that prediction was not not as much a prediction as as much as it was sort of an edict like you cannot live by the two to three digital two to three year digital transformation project the world's moving too quickly just in the span of less than a year i've already been able to document document an entirely new economy an entirely new cross-generational uh set of of incredibly influential customers uh and none of this is going back to the way it was before uh so you have to rapidly iterate and innovate you have to have new operational models and business models that allow you to test with purpose that it isn't just about digital or digitization this is about doing these things uh, that help you become more relevant more meaningful much faster uh, much more adaptable much more agile uh, because that's what it's going to take to compete moving forward well, you've given us so much to think about, Brian. You you genuinely have. There's so much food for thought. And the way you talk about things, the way you, you articulate these things has been, has been really enjoyable. And thank you so much for joining us here on TELUS International Studios today. And we wish you all the very best with your, with your latest book, but also what, what seems to be a really, really interesting journey at a really, really interesting time. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate it. And thank you for, uh, f- for your time. And again, a big thank you to Brian Solace, Global Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce. And make sure to check out that book, Lifescale, How to Live a More Creative, Productive and Happy Life. We've put a link to the book on our show notes, so please do check that out. Thanks to you for listening to another episode of TELUS International Studios. Do check out our back catalogue, loads more brilliant interviews, which I think you'll learn a lot from. If you want to check out a bit more about what TELUS International does, we are at telusinternational.com. Back soon with another great guest. Take care.